second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. I hope that you are all uh, warm and safe after the snowy night that we had in morning. As a reminder, you can always find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start tonight with a story that frankly should surprise no one who listens to this show on a regular basis, or pretty much anyone who doesn't listen to Joe Rogan uh, or Alex Jones. Um, I hope that those Venn diagrams uh, don't overlap with mine very much, unless you are listening ironically, um, which I do to Alex Jones occasionally, but mostly through someone else making fun of him. So, in two separate studies, the antiparasitic drug ivermectin has once again both failed a clinical trial on its efficacy against COVID-19 and has once again been found to be associated closely with Republican politics. Political affiliation should not be a factor in clinical treatment decisions, the Harvard researchers behind one of the studies concluded. Our findings raise concerns for public trust in a nonpartisan healthcare system. Led by Harvard Health Policy researcher Michael Barnett, the researchers noted a sharp increase in prescriptions for ivermectin during the pandemic despite evidence of its ineffectiveness against COVID-19. Now again, there were some um there were some preliminary studies that looked at a bit of uh, possible help, but when people went back and looked at those, they found that they had all sorts of problems with their um, methods and with their conclusions. And so very early on, uh, people were really able to put out there that this was not a good idea. And so unfortunately, by that point, it apparently had already taken hold in the uh, Republican circles and on as a Republican talking point, as a sort of thing they don't want you to know kind of scenario. And that, of course, led to a lot of conspiracy theorists and a lot of anti-government people really kind of digging in their heels on it, despite all of that new evidence. And so this team decided to look and see if prescription levels could be linked with county-level political voting patterns for the 2020 election. And so as a control, they also looked at prescriptions for another antiparasitic drug called albendazole and and an immunosuppressive drug called methotrexate. They surveyed medical claims for more than... 18.5 million adults between January 2019 and December 2020. They then divided the counties for which data was available into four groups. The first quartile had the lowest share of Republican votes and the fourth quartile the most, again in the 2020 election cycle. They found an overall increase in prescriptions for ivermectin of 960 
4% in December 2020 compared to the pre-pandemic December 2021. Now again, as a note, ivermectin is actually a really amazing drugs for curing parasitic infections. Um, and so a lot of people will talk about how, oh, it's a Nobel Prize winning drug. Yes, as an anti-parasitic, COVID-19 is caused by a virus. And while you can say that viruses are parasitic, they are not parasitic in the sense of being a actual parasite for which ivermectin is able to have some sort of effect on. And so uh, the team found what was a very distinct pattern in the data. The prescriptions were not distributed evenly across the country, but had a very solid pattern. The higher the share of Republican votes in a county, the higher the number of prescriptions for ivermectin. They saw a similar pattern with hydroxychloroquine or hydroxychloroquine um, after the FDA revoked the emergency use of the drug in March 2020. Again, prescriptions increased in the latter half of 2020, indexed to Republican votes. And so that's a big measure there, that it wasn't until the FDA said, no, this isn't working, that the prescriptions increased. And so there is definitely a level of, um, I feel like, sort of reflexive anti-government sentiment there as well. And what's important in this study is they found no such patterns when looking at the control drugs. Our findings are consistent with the hypothesis that U.S. prescribing of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin during the COVID-19 pandemic may have been influenced by political affiliation, Barnett and his colleagues concluded. Um, so yeah, um, I don't know. I, it's because I always want to say quinine, um, <laughs> and, uh, that I always mispronounce hydroxychlorine or chloroquinine. I think it, I'm sorry, we're going to move on. <laughs> I hope some of you find my inability to, uh, pronounce things charming and not incredibly annoying. Uh, if you do find it annoying, I'm very sorry. So the second study comes from Malaysia, where researchers are reporting on a study involving 490 high-risk COVID-19 patients. In this tri trial, ivermectin was unsuccessful in arresting the progression to severe disease in these patients. It also failed to make a statistical difference on a variety of factors, including time of disease progression, length of hospital stay, need for ventilators, need for intensive care, and even death. Now, Malaysians are actually required to report cases of COVID-19 to the government, and of and so those who are in uh, high risk of disease progression are either referred to hospitals or admitted to a COVID-19 quarantine center. So basically what this means is that it's much easier to closely track the trial participants um, in a way that made this pretty straightforward. The participants were individuals who had tested positive for the virus, were aged 50 or older, 
and had had at least one underlying medical condition. At the beginning of the trial, 490 patients were considered to have mild or moderate infections. They were then randomly assigned to one of two cohorts. The first cohort of 241 individuals was given oral ivermectin for five days, and the second cohort of 249 patients were assigned to get standard care. At the end of the study, 52 of 241 patients, or 21.6% of those who had been given ivermectin, had progressed to severe disease. On the other hand, just 43 of the 249 patients, or 17.3%, had progressed to severe disease in the control group. So that's pretty interesting. Um, So not only did it not help people, they actually had more incidences of progressing to severe disease than the people who were experiencing standard care. So again, not better, worse. The ivermectin cohort documented more side effects as well, but no other significant differences in disease outcome. Overall, 44 patients reported side effects, with 33 having been in the ivermectin cohort. Unsurprisingly, diarrhea was the most common side effect, as this is something that we already know that ivermectin causes, and um, it's one of the reasons why people have kind of said, you know, taking this without having an actual parasitic infection for which it is required can actually be uh, dangerous. And so five cases of severe adverse reactions were recorded, four of which occurred in patients taking the drug. Two had heart attacks, one had severe anemia, and one developed hypovolemic shock as a result of severe diarrhea. The final patient in the control group had abdominal bleeding. Now, of course, it didn't specifically say, and um, I didn't, I didn't pour through their data points quite finely enough to find out if they actually considered that the heart attacks and anemia were caused directly by the ivermectin. It may have been an influence, but we can't say. It's hard to say specifically that if they hadn't been on ivermectin, that they wouldn't have had a heart attack or have severe anemia, Um, though that one might be a little bit more uh, easy to trace because I know that it can cause real intestinal issues, which might lead to, again, uh, bleeding that can cause anemia. And it's, again, clear through all of this, that ivermectin was not helpful to anyone in this study, and in fact, again, was potentially harmful. And these results mimic those found in other randomized trials from both Colombia and Argentina. Now, of course, part of the issue is is that these are coming from other countries, because in the U.S., We've been pretty straightforward that we don't think that ivermectin works and we're not going to look at it anymore, which is, of course, something that then feeds into the conspiracy theory 
that suggests to Republicans that there's something that we don't want people to know about it, which is, of course, ridiculous. And so the Malaysian team concluded that their randomized clinical trial of high-risk patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 ivermectin treatment during early illness did not prevent progression to severe disease. The study findings do not support the use of ivermectin for patients with COVID-19. So, yeah, pretty straightforward. It does not suggest usage for COVID-19. Ivermectin can be amazing when used for its proper labeled usage. And yes, there are things that can be used off-label. People do it all the time. But after several randomized controlled studies have been done and all show no good results, it's time to step away from the ivermectin and move on to something else. Maybe like getting a vaccine, which is absolutely known to help against COVID-19. And every study that has looked into whether vaccines are effective against the COVID-19 virus have proven time and time and time again that, yes, they are very effective against getting COVID-19. And if you get COVID-19, despite having been uh, vaccinated, it is highly protective against uh, severe disease and death. Do people still die who have been fully vaccinated? Yes. Um, but the amount of those people is very small, and usually they do have multiple underlying conditions. And of course, you know, we could take the whole rest of the time to talk about the issues of uh, our healthcare system and how it is absolutely failing the vast majority of Americans. But I do want to actually talk about other things tonight. <laughs> and frankly, I could fill this entire show for weeks on end with tirades about how our healthcare system is broken. And um, it's interesting. Uh, I was talking to someone earlier about how our political system is broken, and it feels like they're very, very closely tied together in how they are broken. And um, I'm not sure how to fix either of them at this point. <laughs> other than to start over. So we're not going to talk about that. Let's talk about a different study. And this is sticking with COVID. So epidemiologists are tracking a sub-lineage of the Omicron variant called BA2. And so far, the results from the lab versus those from the field from, you know, everyday life have actually been in conflict somewhat, which is interesting. Laboratory and animal data suggested that it can cause more severe disease than the original BA1 Omicron variant. But in countries where it has become the dominant variant, this hasn't actually been seen. And in many cases, both cases and hospitalization are declining. Additionally, while some animal experiments suggested that BA2 might interact differently with some immune responses, compared to the original Omicron variant. Again, real-world data suggests that the three-shot regimen is just as effective, if not slightly more effective, against BA2 
than BA1. However, it is indeed slightly more transmissible, which is allowing it to overtake BA1 in many areas where it has gotten a foothold. Studies show that it grows faster, even faster, and current estimates suggest it is around 30 to 40% more transmissible than BA1, which, as we know, has already been labeled as ultra-transmissible. BA2 now accounts for at least 21% of all sequenced Omicron cases worldwide. And that's just the sequenced ones, which we know is a small portion of all of the cases that are out there. It's now the dominant strain in Bangladesh, China, Denmark, Nepal, Pakistan, and the Philippines. And it's here in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., it tripled from 1.2% in the week ending January 29 to 3.9% in the week ending February 12th. And of course, it can take a long, it can take slightly longer in the U.S. to really get going because obviously it's a big country. Um, and you do have to have actual people moving around and spreading it. So I think that's why it hasn't yet really ramped up, but I'm sure that once we hit a particular tipping point, it's just going to explode here as well. But again, more real-world data is helping to calm fears of the variant. In Denmark, where it accounts for almost 100% of cases at this point, researchers have found no difference in hospitalization, and the analysis looked at several kinds of factors, including age, sex, vaccine status, previous infections with Omicron, all sorts of things. And all across the board, they found no differences in hospitalizations. So it's looking like, fingers crossed, it's not going to be a new, really big, problematic strain. And so, again, all of this is comforting because, for instance, a preprint study from the University of Tokyo found that BA2 could bind to human cells better than BA1 and replicate to higher levels in lung and nasal cells, which is obviously probably the reason why it's even more contagious, because the more particles there are, the more contagious it potentially is. It also caused more severe lung disease in hamsters and mice. But when the researchers pitted the strain against antibody samples from three unvaccinated patients who had recovered from BA1, the immune cells were able to combat the virus. So this is definitely one of those places where, uh, you know, we're constantly saying, just say in mice, um, because sometimes you can find things that happen in mice and in hamsters, which are also considered a pretty good model um, animal. You can find that something happens in those animals and then it doesn't happen in humans. So in this case, it's a win for us. Sometimes it's not because sometimes a drug will have really great promise in mice and then do nothing in humans. But in this case, it's a win. So we'll take that. And so data from the UK and Denmark suggests, in fact, that the vaccine may be slightly more effective against the new strain than the previous strain. And so people who are reporting having been vaccinated, it seems to be that they're slightly less, less likely to get uh, COVID with this new strain. So overall, I don't think this strain 
is uh, more of a concern than the initial variant, though obviously Omicron is, was, and still remains, uh, and will probably still remain for a while, you know, a problem. Even though the spike has uh, taken a downturn, people are still getting infected. Um, a friend of mine, her husband just got COVID the other day and uh, unfortunately was at a conference uh, when he got it. And so now they have to be dealing with contact tracing and things like that. And um, yeah, so it's still very much a problem. This variant isn't more of a problem, it seems, but that doesn't mean it's not still a problem. And so I think that we still have to be really careful and really vigilant in what we're doing. Um, but those things do seem to work. So I didn't want to talk about it completely today because I wanted to talk about other things. But uh, remember that uh, conference, the um, anime conference, I believe it was, that everyone was worried was going to be a super spreader event, including me, I will admit. New uh, papers coming out from the CDC in uh, comorbidity and, um, or sorry, in morbid morbidity and mortality suggest that it turned out to not be a huge super spreader event. So yes, many people did get COVID, but not in a way that was um, more than one would expect. And so it turns out that the venue clearly had uh, a lot of um, good ventilation. They had ventilation with HEPA filters. And so it turns out that with those HEPA filters and with um, people having been wearing masks for the most part, that it turns out that even though there were clusters, so for instance, there was that cluster that we actually talked about at the time, where a bunch of people who knew each other and were hanging out with each other did, most of them did catch COVID-19, but overall it did not become a super spreader event. Okay, so we're going to move on now and we're going to talk about a new study which reports on what is thought to be the third person cured of HIV infection. And so obviously HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. Um, and so in this case, the woman was cured after receiving a stem cell transplant that used cells from umbilical cord blood. The other two people who have been cured, Timothy Brown and Adam Castillo both received bone marrow transplants from donors with a genetic mutation that blocks HIV infection. This involved the transplantation of adult hematiopic stem cells. Those are from adults, and so they are the cells that are able to create, create white blood cells, and other forms of blood cells, which are an important part of the immune system. 
The process, though, was not without significant initial side effects. The stem cells from the rare genetic mutation, which, according to the New York Times, has only been found in around 20,000 bone marrow donors to date, took a heavy toll on both men initially. They both suffered from what is called graft-versus-host disease, where the new cells attacked cells in the patient's own body. But both recovered and were cured of HIV. In this new procedure, the unidentified woman left the hospital just 17 days after the procedure and seems to have had no indications of graft-versus-host disease, according to Dr. Jingmei Xu, the patient's physician at Wheel College, Wheel Cornell Medicine in New York. Dr. Sharon Lewin, president-elect of the International AIDS Society, who was not involved in the work, told the Times that this dispels the theory that some amount of graft-versus-host disease may be necessary for curing HIV. And so it turns out that the woman was not only HIV positive, but also had acute myeloid leukemia, a cancer that again affects blood-forming cells in the bone marrow. And so this treatment was meant to help both diseases. Core blood contains a high quantity of hematopoietic cell stem cells and also does not need to be matched to the transplant recipient as closely as bone marrow donations. For bone marrow do donations, the donor and recipient's HLA, or human leukocyte antigen tissue type, must be closely matched. These HLA proteins come in different varieties, and the varieties must be closely matched between a donor and recipient in order to avoid aggressive immune reactions. But because a baby's immune system is not highly developed, the HLAs of the baby's cord blood and the recipient do not have to match as closely. In this case, the woman was a partial match and supplemented the donation with stem cells from a close relative to help boost her immune system after the procedure. The transplant from the relative is like a bridge that got her through to the point of the cord blood being able to take over, said Dr. Marshall Glesby, an infectious disease expert at Wheel Cornell Medicine and part of the research team. The procedure took place in August of 2017, and she stopped taking her antiretroviral drugs 37 months after her transplant. Since then, more than 14 months have passed and neither traces of virus nor antibodies against the virus have been, have been detected in her blood. Now, the woman is actually part of a trial that will soon be following 25 people with HIV who will receive cord stem cell transplants for the treatment of cancer. Again, because cord blood is more widely available and more easily matched, researchers hope that this will make the procedure more available for HIV patients. We estimate that there are approximately 50 patients per year in the U.S. who could benefit from this procedure, noted study author Dr. Cohen Van Bessien, director of the Stem Cell Transplant Program at Wheel Cornell Medicine. The ability to use partially matched umbilical cord blood grafts 
greatly increases the likelihood of finding suitable donors for such patients, Van Vessian said. Now, of course, worldwide, nearly 38 million people are living with HIV. Now, antiretroviral drugs allow many who can access them the ability to turn what was once a fairly quick, quickly killing disease uh, into a chronic disease. And people can live for decades and have what is functionally a normal life. But many more people don't have access to the drugs, let alone to transplant facilities. And of course, I think, as with all drugs, some people probably have some uh, side effects for the drugs. And I know that they're a pretty uh, sort of regimented uh, activity that you have to take, you know, several drugs every day at different times of the day. And so, you know, it's a pain to do that for the rest of your life, but obviously it's better than um, having your HIV infection develop into full-blown AIDS. But again, many people don't have access to either. Now, a vaccine is attempting to be developed for HIV, but obviously that won't help the people who are already infected necessarily. Um, and there's still a lot of testing before that can be actually rolled out. And so I think that while this is very cool and I wanted to talk about it, I think that we also have to remember that there are a lot of people suffering with HIV who don't have access to this kind of cutting edge medicine, especially people in Africa, um, which just continues to be burdened by this disease. So yeah, just a little bit of tempering here, unfortunately, because while this is really cool, it's clearly meant for a very tiny subsection of people who are infected with HIV. So speaking of things that are, you know, not great, uh, researchers at UMass Amherst are working with an international team to study uh, amoebas called Negleria, which among them is a form that is the quote-unquote brain-eating amoebas. So we're going to talk about that when we come back in a few minutes. So please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, 
post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are still listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and now we are going to talk about amoebas. And so we're not going to talk specifically about the brain-eating version, but we're going to talk about one of its closely uh, related strains. So again, researchers at UMass Amherst have worked with an international team to study these uh, tiny little amoebas. They're looking at Nigleria gruberi. And so this is, quote, a unicellular eukaryote whose evolutionary distance from animals and fungi has made it useful for developing hypotheses about the last common eukaryotic ancestor. And so writing in the journal Current Biology, they described how they have evolved more distinct sets of tubulins used for specific cellular processes than previously understood. And so a large portion of life on Earth relies on polymers called microtubules, and these in turn are composed of tubulin. And so these are basically the building blocks for many processes within the cell. The microtubules are used in everything from helping the cell move to transporting food and waste within the cell and giving the cell structural support. They also help with mitosis, which is, in case you have uh, forgotten, when a cell divides by copying its chromosomes and then splitting itself into two. One of the most important steps in this process is when a spindle made up of microtubules grabs hold of the chromosomes and helps separate them into two sets. Biologists had known that Nelgleria used a specific type of tubulin during meiosis, but the new study, led by Katrina Vell, a postdoc in biology at UMass Amherst and the paper's lead author, showed that Nelgleria employs three additional distinct tubulins during mitosis. One pair of tubulins are used only during mitosis, while the other, the flagellate, flagellate tubulin, specializes in cellular movement. So, of course, if you think of flagella, flagella are basically what a lot of uh, single-celled organ organisms use to get around. And so that tubulin probably also functions to create a flagella. So the team then compared these tubulins and the structures they create to other known species, which can give insight into a range of questions. 
For instance, the species of Nagleria being studied, Nagleria gruberi again, are, as we noted, closely related to Nagleria fowleri, which are the brain-eating variety of amoeba. Uh, another thing to haunt my <laughs> nightmares. Uh, don't ever go swimming in a warm pond uh, is basically my advice. Uh, and obviously, brain-eating amoebas are pretty rare, but the fact that they exist at all is a little bit too much for me. And <laughs> I'm, I'm just really glad that I live in the uh, Northeast where uh, ponds don't tend to get warm enough in order for them to be able to survive. Uh, not that I've been swimming in a pond in a very long time, but still. <sighs> so, if we can understand the basic biology of Nagleria, says Vel, we can learn how to kill it by devising drugs that target the amoeba's unique tubulins, which would be really great because right now I don't think there's actually any uh, kinds of treatment for the disease. I think that basically, unfortunately, people who are infected do tend to not have a good outcome. But beyond this practical but important concern, the researchers can also tell us more. Uh, the research can also tell us more about the basic building steps of creating an organism, and what sorts of rules are in place when they replicate and form structures. All organisms have to replicate themselves," said Lillian Fritz Leyland, professor of biology at UMass Amherst and a senior author of the paper. We know how the replication processes work for some cells, but there's a huge set that we don't understand. Nagleria lets us test the rules scientists have come up with to see if they hold here. And so, in order to conduct the researchers, the team glue the Nagleria cells and stained them with different chemicals so that they would glow and then took extremely high-resolution 3D photographs. This allowed them unprecedented views, and that allowed them to measure, count, and analyze the different microtubule structures. I've spent most of my career studying the meiotic spindles of more common cells like mammalian cells, said Patricia Wadsworth, professor of biology at UMass Amherst and one of the paper's senior authors. The tools of modern biology allow us to explore more diverse cells, like Nagleria, which is in some ways similar, but also very different. And in addition, this is another case where researchers from all over the world and from various disciplines have come together to answer interesting questions about the fundamentals of our world. People often think of technology driving science, said Fritz Leyland, but in this case, the questions we are trying to answer are so fundamental to how life on Earth operates and of such interest to so many scientific specialties that we need to assemble an international team of various experts. In this case, collaboration, teamwork, and effective communication drove the science. Okay, so we're going to turn on, we're going to move on now, and we are going to turn to talking about birds. Hooray! Uh, so first off, as advertised last week, we are going to discuss Goffin's cockatoos, 
and their tool usage, including playing a kind of rudimentary golf. And so the research is actually meant to explore their ability to combine multiple objects into one tool and kind of to think about and to model um, evolutionary implications for how humans may have learned how to use tools. So obviously this is an animal model for something that humans developed at some point. And so it's not just to see how cool the parrots are, even though the parrots are pretty awesome. So the star of the show and of many of these papers, uh, we're going to talk about several of them, is Figaro. And so uh, he was the original uh, tool using tool using parrot in this lab. And so he lives in the uh, quote unquote Goffin lab at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna. And so originally he was able to spontaneously develop tool, tool use. So in previous work, researchers first observed Figaro playing with a stone which fell behind a metal divider. Because he couldn't reach it with his claw, he found a piece of bamboo and tried to push it into reach. He wasn't successful, but this gave the researchers the idea for a test scenario. While we know that corvids and jays often employ tools, even in the wild, parrots have been known mostly for their communication skills and not tool use. They then placed a tasty nut behind a screen to see what he'd do. He retrieved a stick, but it was too short. So then he splintered off a long piece of wood from the wooden base of the enclosure. This allowed him to secure the nut. In subsequent trials, Figaro used different types of tools, even modifying some of them to get the tasty treat. Now, because parrots are not known for wild tool use, the researchers concluded that instead of tool use being seen as a distinct mental capacity, it may in fact be a possible outcome of some sort of baseline of what they call physical intelligence. Goffin's cockatoos obviously don't normally use tools, but when presented with a challenge, they were able to use their cognitive skills to rise to that challenge. And so the next paper from the group involved other male cockatoos who had watched Figaro's innovation. These subsequent cockatoos began to use tools to gather a nut, but interestingly, they used a different technique. Instead of dragging the nut toward themselves as Figaro did, they actually used the stick as a lever to flick the food to the edge of the cage where they could grab it. And even more interestingly, this is just wild to me, and I don't know that we have a good explanation for it yet. Uh, sometimes the birds would lose a tool, uh, leave it somewhere where they then couldn't get to it. And in this case, they would find another tool. So far, so good. But instead of using that new tool to get the nut, they would instead use the tool to, re to retrieve the original tool. One parrot even did this twice over. So it like in order to finally retrieve the original tool. 
And so later they found that another male began to make tools by pulling splinters off the block of block of wood after just a few sessions of of being in the scenario. A third needed just a single viewing of Figaro doing his thing to begin using a tool. And so what all this suggests to the researchers actually is that learning tool creation is easier than using than learning tool use. And so they then looked at the difference between captive bred and wild bred uh, birds. And they found that though the wild birds were less overall interested in the uh, experimental setup, even though, you know, there were tasty uh, cashews involved, they were able to solve the problems to get nuts at around the same rate as those that were captive raised. And so this time around this particular new scenario, the birds had to manipulate a small ball through a hole in a closed box and then use a stick to push the ball to one side of the box. This would then trigger a trapdoor mechanism, which would give them access to a tasty cashew nut, as noted before. Who doesn't want a tasty cashew nut? Uh, Obviously, people who are allergic. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Figaro and two other cockatoos were able to successfully solve the problem, showing that they have the capacity for complex tool use. So this was, you know, next level. This wasn't just pulling off a piece of wood and using it to drag something towards you. This was, you had to actually put the... uh, I believe they had to actually put the ball itself into the apparatus and then also use the stick to uh, get the nut. One of the most amazing aspects of the process was to observe how these animals each invented their own individual technique and how to grip the stick and hit the ball, sometimes with astonishing dexterity, said co-author Antonio Asuna Mascaro a member of the lab. One of the birds operated the stick while holding it between the mandibles, one between the beak tip and tongue, and one with his claw similar to a primate. Now, all of these experiments have been devised to help compare the innovation and problem-solving skills of cockatoos with human children. Although children are very good at using tools and technology in their lives, think spoons and iPads, our research has shown that young children often find it hard to invent novel solutions to problems involving tool use, said co-author Sarah Beck of the University of Birmingham. In fact, children under eight can really struggle to solve problems that cockatoos can master. So while this study is the first to show that cockatoos can coordinate tools to solve a problem, it also feeds into our ongoing work with children. Tempting as it might be to speculate, it's not simply a question of who is the cleverest, children or cockatoos. Instead, comparing a different species helps us understand how humans and some other species develop impressive technological skills. So yeah, very cool. Birds are once again knocking it out of the ballpark for being super awesome and able to 
figure things out. And so, yeah. And so speaking of that, it turns out that (laughs) this one is really great. Uh, Magpies are, you know, in that sort of Corvid uh, J family. So they are more uh, obviously used to using tools. And so uh, a team in Australia was thinking, you know, they wanted to study these magpies. And so they thought they had had this great idea and they had created this tracking device to help them monitor the magpies. But um, yeah, it didn't work out quite the way that they were hoping it would. And so uh, the new research is published in Australian Field Ornithology. And so a small group of Australian magpies, uh, after being fitted with harness-like tracking devices, uh, basically decided that they weren't interested in having these on them. And so the birds actually helped each other remove the devices. And so they are considering this a potential sign of altruism and obviously strong problem-solving skills among these birds. And uh, so apparently this is called rescue behavior. And so uh, when someone helps to try and free another individual in distress, which, you know, has no obvious direct benefit to the rescuing individual, said the authors in their paper. And so ants do this a lot. Um, It's been documented apparently in Seychelles warblers, uh, who apparently help liberate each other from sticky uh, seeds. And so this is probably the first time it's been seen in Australian magpies. And so the purpose of the experiment was that they wanted to learn more about, you know, the social dynamics of magpies. So in that respect, um, it was great. But they also wanted to learn about things like how far they travel each day and uh, how their social behaviors are influenced by uh, sex, age, and rank. And so, um, the second purpose of the, uh, of the study was to test these newly developed, uh, tracking devices. <laughs> Instead, the birds outsmarted us, Dominique Potvin, an ornithologist at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia, uh, noted. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Um, I, I adore this. Um, and so they, you know, they thought they had designed these great little backpack devices that you could put onto them, um, and they could recharge wirelessly, transmit data wirelessly. They could detach with the use of a magnet, magnet, magnet. Ooh. Um, and so that meant you didn't have to catch the birds a second time. And so, yeah, it seemed totally great and exciting. Uh, except for when they piloted it. And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> they fitted five birds with the uh, with the harnesses. And um, then literally <laughs> within, 10 to fifth, within 10 minutes of fitting the fifth and final tracker, an adult female without a tracker uh, was noted to see to be seen 
uh, trying to remove the harness from a younger bird and eventually got it off. And so in the following hours, um, you know, this continued on. And by the third day, uh, the final tracker had been removed from a dominant male. And um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so they did find something. They just didn't find what they thought they were going to find. And so obviously these magpies are uh, highly intelligent and have lots of problem solving abilities. And so they suspect that it might have uh, triggered them to think that this was a parasite that needed to be removed. Um, and so that was why they were helping each other because, you know, they live in social communities. And so, yeah, it was pretty exciting and hilarious to see them taking these off. <laughs> oh, good times. Um, I do feel bad for the researchers, but it's also pretty darn hilarious. All right. We have just enough time for one more story. And so about a decade ago, some elephant sealed males were equipped with recording devices on their backs to test whether they make noise as they swim out to sea for food. It turns out that they didn't, but what researchers heard instead was the clicking calls of sperm whales. And so, basically, nothing much was done with that uh, info at the time until recently. And so next week, marine biologists at the University of California, Santa Cruz, will be equipping a fresh set of elephant seals with microphones. The cool thing is that seals are like migratory birds. They return to the same spot each year after patrolling the vast Pacific Ocean, a place that is hard for researchers to do work in, obviously. And so the seals should be out for about two months, and if all goes to plan, it will be the first time that scientists have used animals rather than a network of underwater microphones to listen to deep ocean life for more than a few days. So one of the big things they're hoping to hear are elusive beaked whales to learn more about this vast but poorly understood ecosystem as well. And so the steel, the seals will again be offshore for the entire two months. They most likely take naps apparently while drifting a few hundred meters underwater, according to Roxanne Beltran, an assistant professor at UCSC who's co-leading the project. They can plunge a, as much as a mile underwater, hunting for small fish, squid, and even shark. This, of course, puts them in close proximity to whales and other marine mammals. And as noticed, noted, they don't tend to make noise themselves. They're not contaminating the data, said Holger Klink, an expert in bioacoustics at Cornell University, who's co-leading the project with Beltran. They're really only measuring what's going on in their surroundings. And so we'll once again have to see how well this works out. Um, and so the the devices cost around $5,000 and they're not capable of remotely sending data. So it's important for the team to be able to retrieve the actual devices, which are around the size of an old cell phone. The team will start with three female seals at Año Nuevo Reserve in Northern California. Now, females have a higher survival rate and reliably head out to sea right after weaning their pups, which is why they were chosen. And so the work actually builds on research at UC UCSC led by Dan Costa, which has monitored local seals since the 1960s. Uh, the trip should last around 75 days, and the seals will actually 
swim around a quarter of the way to Japan before they come back. The devices will have a 40-day battery life and will also measure location, depth, and water temperatures along with sound. And so they are hoping to hear um, a bunch of different whales. And uh, so one of those, of course, is those beak whales. And so we know very little about them, despite the fact that they account for more than a quarter of living cetaceans. They spend most of their time in deep water, and much of what we know about the 20 species that we know of have come from carcasses that have washed ashore. And so we hope that we can learn more about them so that we can better protect them. And so, yeah. The elephant seals can help us collect information where we have little to no data, Clink told Vox. And so again, this is another proof of concept and hopefully it will work better than the crow, than the, sorry, the magpie one. All right, that's all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Evidence-Based Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.